1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. They could become an independent dominion within the British Empire, or they could vote to join Canada in Confederation. The anti-Confederates are not going to get away with it. But St. John's was an anti-Confederate headquarters. Watch in particular the attractive bait which will be held out to lure our country into the Canadian mousetrap. Listen to the Stories Behind the History podcast for our special series, How Did Newfoundland Join Canada? Available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. When I first moved to Toronto, I lived in an apartment on a border between rich and poor. It stood between million-dollar houses and huge rental buildings. The bus stop closest to me was nestled in among the huge houses with sprawling front yards, each with its own security sign poking out of a perfectly manicured lawn. As I waited for the bus on my first day there, I noticed I was alone. The people in this part of the neighborhood did not take public transit. When I got onto the bus, I joined the other passengers, all of whom were brown women, mostly from the Philippines. When I sat down, the woman across from me smiled and said, whose kids are you looking after? This is The Secret Life of Canada, a history podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. At what age do you think someone should start doing their own laundry? Ooh, without help? <laughs> Maybe 13? 13, 14, like 11. I feel like 16 <laughs> is definitely a good age. I don't do my own laundry, but I probably should. <laughs> Did anyone do your laundry or cook for you when you were growing up? Yes, my mother and my aunt. Yeah. <laughs> I am, I am, I'm the lady. I do everything. My mom still does my laundry. And how old are you? 24. <laughs> That is amazing. <laughs> hey, do you remember that show Super Nanny? Oh, yeah. She was British. Yeah, she would yeah. go to people's houses, yell at them, and <laughs> yell watch at them the- <laughs> yell at their kids yeah. and judge them. Yeah. Um, I always have a British woman in my head when I think of a nanny. You know, it's like Mary Poppins, that whole kind of genre. Of- yeah. I go I go to mm-hmm. Fran Drescher's nanny, uh-huh. the nanny from the 90s sitcom. Mm-hmm. You know, she was the New York accented, uh, yeah. uh, PG rated sexual tension. She right. wore like a lot of leopard print and high heels. Big and hair. Big hair. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, today we want to dive into the archives to figure out just who has been looking after Canadian children. We're going to tell you about the lives of these women and what these stories and their stories can tell us about social inequality in the past and present. Yeah, and the answer may surprise you. Oh, definitely. I mean, Finnish nannies are not the first thing I thought of when I think of caregivers in Canada. I also never knew residential schools sent out girls to take care of white children. And that as Canada recruited women from all over the world to work as nannies, they only let some of them stay and the rest got deported when the kids grew up. I can guess who got to stay. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. But let's begin at the beginning. Back in the 1600s, there were many indigenous women and black women who looked after the children of settlers and colonizers, like I said, between the 1600s and probably up until about 1834. Pop quiz, Phelan, what happened in 1834? Um, 
I'm like, I'm like, you could, the pop quiz could be about anything and I would Mm -hmm. sound nervous. Like it could be like, what's your middle name? And like, (laughs) you just hear the sound of me peeing my pants. Uh, Okay. Sorry. 1834. Mm -hmm. uh, Slavery was abolished. That is right. That is right. We did an episode on that. So we, we know this now. Yeah. So what you're saying is that the first nannies in Canada, this is while Canada was still a colony of Britain, were enslaved black and indigenous women. And yes, listeners... There were indigenous slaves in Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can learn more about that from an episode we did way back in season one called The Secret Life of Birchtown. Yep, that's right. And black slaves. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. It was great times. (laughs) Not... Okay, that's right. So typically these women would look after the children, do all of the household chores. I mean, it's something... I don't know about you. I think of every time I walk into one of those old historical houses... Anywhere in we Canada. go to a lot of those. We actually, t- <laughs> we actually do, and inevitably it will have a picture of like Sir Mister Big Shot Esquire, and I always go, well, you know, who cleaned this place? Who made his shirt so white? Like you know, who, who curled his curly cues? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like who ironed his lace? <laughs> That's right. Who, who, who combed his mustache? Like all of that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who like feathered his his mutton chops? <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was the, the the women. You know, I always think about the women. Yeah. Um, another thing that these women had to do of this time is change the chamber pots. Yeah. So like, I'm. If you don't know what a chamber pot is, yes. it's a it's a sort of like a giant. Bowl. bowl that lives under your bed or in your room where you sleep and then in the middle of the night or whenever you can go over there and do, do your business do your business and, and then somebody's got to empty that out yeah there were no toilets at this time yes. in houses so one of the duties of the maids you get up in the morning and while you know mr big shot and mrs big shot were still sleeping you'd go the practice was the chamber pot was left on the side table they would get up in the middle of the night go do their thing in it, and then they would put it under the bed. Yeah. And then so they would go under the bed, have to grab it, and then take it outside and dump it and then clean that pot. And so these rich families needed help or thought they needed help, right? They were well-to-do and they were doing other things. And so a driver, a maid, a nanny, and sometimes – you know, servants would do multiple jobs. Like the, you would be the nanny, but you would also be the maid. You'd be the the driver, but you would also be the guy who chopped wood or whatever. Also, depending on this time, you know, the family might not have been super duper rich, but just better off than the people they hired. At this time, many of the women they hired were Irish. By 1847, over 100,000 Irish immigrants landed in Canada trying to escape the Great Famine, or as it's commonly called, the Potato Famine. It happened due to a massive crop failure and political decisions made by Britain at the expense of the Irish. And this led to widespread starvation, poverty and disease. It was an awful, awful time for the Irish. Yeah. And the Irish were being forced off their lands and hit with really high rents by English landowners. The colonization that England took on was not only happening here in North America, the West Indies and India but also all over the world and Ireland. So at this point, many Irish fled this. And when they arrived, reception here was mixed because the power that existed at the time in Canada was mostly British and Protestant. And can you explain what a Protestant is and what a Catholic is for the non-Christians among us? Yeah, okay, but I feel like we need some church music. Katie? 
So once upon a time in Christianity, which is a religion based on the teaching of a guy you may or may not have heard of named Jesus Christ, there were a bunch of churches that formed out of these teachings, one of which was the Catholic Church. The Catholics have a head of the church called the Pope and a bunch of rules called sacraments. But by the 16th century, a lot of people were not feeling these rules and the idea of a Pope. A guy by the name of Martin Luther wrote a book about how much he felt the Catholic Church was just not getting it right. And that sentiment eventually broke into a bunch of other churches over time, like the Lutherans, Anglicans, which is the Church of England, Pentecostals, Baptists, and so on and so on. That began the tension and disagreements between the reformers called Protestants and Catholics. Does that make sense? That was really good. That Thank was you. Very good. Okay. I, I left out a lot of. A lot. In a nutshell, but we, we get the gist. Okay. In a nutshell. Okay. Yeah. So at the time, many English saw the Irish as a different race, low class and ostracized. Many Irish built their own communities for their own protection. It's kind of like what we talked about in Chinatown, how mm-hmm. communities build their own communities within other communities so that they can sort of safe. Yeah, be safe, band together. Yeah. They were trying to protect themselves against groups like the Orange Order, who had started organizing against Irish Catholics. Right. So the Orange Order was one of those, you know, secret men's clubs. And the really weird part about them is that they were also Irish. Like the Orange Order was an Irish club, but they were Irish Protestant. So like the only thing that really made them different was that they had different religions. That's right. Uh, But, you know, like the history of the world, you change a couple rules in a book and then it's like, we're so different, we can't get along. Um, So they let in British members, they let in non-Irish immigrants, because basically a lot of these people were really into anti-Catholic racism, essentially. Uh, Their whole thing was about rejecting Irish Catholics and their immigration due to what they decided were, you know, big cultural and religious differences and a way, of course, to protect jobs, Protestant jobs. So what was life like for these Irish women who worked as nannies? Well, a majority were servants who did everything. You know, people looking for servants wanted British women who they thought were, you know, more acceptable and, you know, like attracts like. They wanted to hear their own accent, I guess, in their house, whatever. So the discrimination against the Irish was common. Here is a verse to a popular song written by Kathleen O'Neill in 1862 called No Irish Need Apply. I'm a simple Irish girl and I'm looking for a place. I've felt the grip of poverty, but sure that's no disgrace. Twill be long before I get one, though indeed it's hard I try, for I read in each advertisement No Irish Need Apply. Yeah, and The thing was, these upper crust families actually could not be choosy. They could not put out these advertisements. I mean, they did, but it was ridiculous because there were just not that many British women to choose from. So they had to turn to Irish women and then Eastern European women. By 1901, 38% of all women with jobs were servants. The work was long, and most women would live with their employers, which meant your boss could call on you day and night, There was really no freedom and a lot of verbal, physical, and sexual abuse. Most of the women were under 30, and some were as young as 13. Many employers were suspicious of them and would accuse them of stealing, being bad workers or prostitutes. I mean, basically, whatever they could come up with to get a woman they didn't like arrested or thrown out arbitrarily. 
The women and girls were often powerless because they were seen as working or low class or inferior. Being a maid or nanny was a high turnover job. Yeah. In 1901, the national average pay for working men in a domestic or house job was $272 per year, compared to just $120 per year for female domestics. What? Yeah. I tried to find out how much it cost to live at this time, just for a bit of context. Like, was that, you know, was $120 a year like... $80,000 a year right right now. I don't know. So what I did find is an account that stated if one shared a small rented house and survived on a very modest diet, a worker might then live on between $80 to $100 a year in Halifax, Montreal, or Toronto, and around $120 a year in Vancouver. Vancouver... You've always been expensive. It's always been expensive. (laughs) It's bad. Yeah. Yeah. So that also means that these women weren't able to put anyway any like put away any savings Mm -mm. if they you know like they were no paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. Extreme paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. They were living in poverty basically. Yeah. One thing that we should keep in mind though is most were living workers. So maybe they made a bit more because they weren't paying the expenses of rent and food. But either way, the job was awful, the pay was awful, and oftentimes the employers were awful. Well, and a lot of the time, weren't these women sending money home back to their families as well? Like they weren't, like I think in some cases, supporting just themselves by working? Well, a lot of them were supporting others. I mean, I think throughout time, now more recent, they're sending money home. I don't know how they were doing it at this time because of travel, but definitely they were supporting probably a lot of people well it was Um, also like families that couldn't afford to keep their they mm -hmm. couldn't afford to house and feed their daughters their 13 year old daughter you would be sent to work and this kind of stuff it's become the lore of books like Mm -hmm. uh margaret atwood's alias grace Mm -hmm. a historical fiction novel based on the real life of grace marks an irish maid in ontario who in 1843 was accused and convicted of murdering her employer thomas kinnear and the housekeeper, Nancy Montgomery. It's still a big question whether she did it or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And there's also this book called The Massey Murder by Charlotte Gray, which recounts the true story of 18-year-old British maid Carrie Davies, who shot her employer, the Toronto socialite Bert Massey. Um, If you're from Toronto or Ontario, you'll know of the famed Massey family. She was actually afraid that he was going to rape her. Um, So she shot him. It resulted in a huge trial, and Carrie was actually found not guilty, which was pretty rare back then. And then there's the story of Hilda Blake. She was a British maid who worked for a couple in Manitoba. She was deeply abused as a child, and she had worked as a servant for her entire life. On June 20th, 1899, she bought a gun and shot her mistress. She confessed that she hoped that she would become the lady of the house and the mother of the children she was helping to raise. She was hung, and she would be the only woman executed in the province of Manitoba, ever. Yeah, but these accounts of, you know, domestics gone wild were uncommon. Most really struggled in these jobs. They left as soon as they could get out of them. I mean, one good thing was the demand was high for domestics at this time. I mean, newspaper reports regularly talked about the shortages of female servants, which they called the servant girl problem. 
Right. So this meant that women had choices of where they wanted to work. They could kind of pick. Mm -hmm. So how did people deal with this shortage? Well, the government actually actively started recruiting young women from Europe. Being a domestic servant was really the only way a single woman could get into the country. And that is a thing that until recently hadn't really changed. If you wanted to be a domestic in Canada to come here, you had to be single. Ew. I'm like, why? Well, that's a great question. I don't understand I think, the rationale behind that. I think the the one on paper is that if you don't have any family, like if you don't have a husband and kids behind, you're more apt to come and like work toil for years and have no right, one to right. pull you back or or to try to bring over. So when they started recruiting from Europe, this meant a new kind of nanny for Canadian families, one who was Finnish. The federal government actually bent immigration regulation for these women who promised to work as domestic servants. But this is because they were white, right? I would say yes. <laughs> I mean, we will see in a minute that as soon as black and brown women came over to do this work, immigration regulations strangely became much harder. Weird. But, you know, so weird. So weird. But the thing is, is actually, you know, the treatment of Irish, Eastern European, Finnish nannies was still bad. But the thing is, is that they could blend in Right. with yeah. the majority ruling class. Yeah, it's in not a that way. the job wasn't equally horrible. Mm -hmm. It's just they could blend in faster. Yeah. Although a lot of people did complain about the Finnish women. They said that they were stubborn, opinionated, bossy, you know, heaven forbid a woman have a opinion about things, especially when yeah. she's looking after your kids. Yeah, exactly. Hello. So the following, though, was published in a Finnish paper and I think really outlines the demand for Finnish domestics. I am not beautiful, yet I am the most wanted woman. I am not rich, yet I am worth my weight in gold. I might be dull, stupid, dirty and mean, yet all doors are open for me. I am a welcome guest. All of the elite compete for me. I am a maid. By 1929, 1,288 Finnish women arrived in Canada to work as domestics. They knew they would have no problem finding a job because of the shortages. Right. Even during the Depression in 1937, when Canada stopped all immigration because the economy was so bad, everything was imploding, they still had a special program to bring in Scandinavian and Finnish domestics. When this Great Depression hit, the lumber industry also just tanked. Most Finnish men at this time worked in the lumber industry, and they were really upset because they had to take on the duties of the house and look after the kids. That's right. if these women had gotten married and had kids. A lot of them didn't get married. Most of these men were not happy about the women having to support the family because they were unemployed. Right. And that's pretty common when it comes to times of war or when the economy crashes. You know, the women sometimes have to go to work and the mm -hmm. men have to take on the role of caregiver. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. they're always mad about it. Yeah. You know why? Because it's hard work. Yeah. It takes skills. Yes. And the patriarchy likes to pretend that it doesn't and that it's a really easy job. But really, mm. and, you know, these women knew that 
and they knew that they were basically being underpaid. And the really interesting thing that I found about the Finnish uh, domestics is that a lot of them were socialists. And because of this, they knew how to organize. So in 1925, they started the Maids Organization. They founded it in Toronto, and they set up a program to make sure the new nannies would have good placements kind of know their rights. At the same time that this was going on, the Toronto Chinese community was setting up a domestic workers union as well. Another one formed in Montreal because that's where most of the new domestics were arriving. You know, Montreal's this big port and it could, it was bringing in a lot of immigrants. The newer you were, the more employers would take advantage of you, right? Because you right. just didn't know. You didn't know the rules. You, you didn't, didn't know, know what your place. rights were. That's right. Yeah. So these unions really focused on getting salaries up to the minimum wage. And because of their work, Finnish domestics were some of the highest paid in the country. Oh, wow. In 1948, the people in the British colony of Newfoundland faced a choice. They could become an independent dominion within the British Empire, or they could vote to join Canada in Confederation. The anti-Confederates are not going to get away with it. But St. John's was an anti-Confederate headquarters. Watch in particular the attractive bait which will be held out to lure our country into the Canadian mousetrap. Listen to the Stories Behind the History podcast for our special series, How Did Newfoundland Join Canada? Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think that Canada has a class system? Redefine class system, like... Like just different tiers of economic status, wealth, that kind of idea. Um, yeah, totally. You have to critically think about it, but the class system, I think it's evident. I mean, you go into neighborhoods, you, you have it there too, you have... Uh, community housing, right? You have the suburbs and then you have like, you go a little bit more out of the suburbs and you have like people living in their big mansion. What kind of jobs would you associate with like each different class system? It, you know, the lower class tends to have, you know, more manual jobs, more manual labor. Low end, like hospitality work, you know, cleaning rooms or something like that. At the higher level you have like, you know, the Bay Street, like, you know, <laughs> work on the top floor. <laughs> yeah. CEO of a company. <laughs> it's not as obvious that there is a class system, but I don't know, because like, like I work in retail and like the way some people kind of, I don't know, they have this kind of attitude towards you where they'll just hand you things and expect you to do them. I can sense that very, like that superiority. So at the same time that this was going on with the Finnish, Indigenous girls were being trained to be domestics in residential schools. So this isn't surprising because many residential schools actually started as industrial schools. So they'd be learning, you know, sewing and, right. and the boys would be learning farming. So skills to put them in positions of servitude. That's right. And I got a lot of this information from a really great book called Indigenous Women, Work and History by Mary Jane Logan McCallum. So while not enslaved, I would argue that they were oftentimes these girls forced to do this work. Residential schools regularly place students in jobs as part of their schooling. And actually, it seems like the schools benefited off this practice for years. Yes. Indian agents working for the Department of Indian Affairs controlled the options available to female students. These guys would often keep files on girls, dividing them into categories, 
good for domestic work or not good for domestic work. Students at residential schools spent as much time learning to read and write as they did learning to cook, sew, and do manual labor. Their days were often split into academic learning and trade learning. Yeah, if they did get placed or forced to go work as a nanny or maid, the surveillance they kept on these girls was nightmarish. I mean, the Indian agent controlled their bank accounts. Also, like the other woman we heard about, their private time was closely monitored. And for girls who were in residential school, who they hung out with or tried to date was also in the purview of the Indian agent. That is so gross. I mean, this was the system. This is what the schools wanted to really, like we said, keep these kids in certain jobs. There's actually documentation of wanting to keep the best female workers isolated from their potential partners or even from their families so that they would become and stay domestics. It was a way of of keeping them in this laborious kind of hellscape. A Cree writer by the name of Jane Willis wrote in her 1973 autobiography, which we will link to on our website, that she worked six days a week for the wife of a school principal, a residential school principal. She describes her average work day, which would start at 7.30 a.m. when the kids woke up and then would go late into the night. And she was on call at all times. She was responsible for the children's feeding, washing and dressing and activities. And then all the household chores, cooking and cleaning, laundry. While she would do this, her boss, Mrs. Montgomery, would watch her or sleep or read. Well, Mrs. Montgomery. You're into some freaky sh**. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with you? You know, Jane's experiences were pretty terrible, and so much so that many girls like Jane ran away. Some, though, decided to stay because they got this clothing allowance. They would get a little extra money for a new outfit, and I'm talking one new outfit. Remember, some of these children at residential school only had one dress, one pair of shoes, yeah. one pair of pants for years, you know? And so this clothing allowance gave them one new coat and one new pair of shoes. But this was only for Indigenous girls who agreed to do this work that had status. There was an account of a non-status Indigenous girl in a residential school who was made to pay the Department of Indian Affairs back for her coat after she was placed in a house. I bet you if she was at home with her real family, they would have kept her warm. <laughs> I know that. I'm sorry. It's hard. But I just think of like this, like uh, this little kid wearing a like a terrible coat. But mm -hmm. if she was at home with her people and learning how to, you know, how she to maybe if, if her people are trappers, like to trap and to m make her own warmth. Yeah. And not depend on like. And you read about these, you know, reading about this, it was such a thing for some of these girls that they were like, yes, I will do it if I can get a coat and just one new outfit because I've been in the same clothes for so many years. Like it was a huge yeah. get, you know. This led to other things like there was an entire program called the Ottawa Experiment where they tried to place girls in the houses of Ottawa's upper crust, you know, usually politicians and the like. One of the few letters in the files written by one of these girls shows the kind of working conditions she faced as a nanny. Unfortunately, her name was not recorded, but in this letter, she wrote to the principal of her school, a Mr. Morris. 
July 1st, 1943. Mr. Morris, I really don't like to go back to work because she's cross at me. One minute, the next minute she's nice. The oldest girl is very naughty. She used to slap my face. I don't feel like it's my home there. Oh, <laughs> this is gonna be hard. Yeah, it's a bad one. I'd love to work at another place where a person can always be nice to me, also the children. Many times I used to cry. So Mr. Morris, I would love to work another place where there was only one child. I love children, all right, but not when they tell me to shut up or tells me to come back home. And here is his response. July 5th, 1943. They've been very kind to you in that they provided you holidays with pay. My idea is that if you continue working and endeavor to bank some of your money together with your separation allowance, when the war is over, you will have a nice bank account, which will enable you and your husband to set yourselves up properly, keeping house and perhaps have a small farm. It looks like a real opportunity for you to save money and plan for your future happiness. Mr. Morris. So this was happening to Indigenous girls and women during the 20s and going on to the 60s. So in the rest of the country, what was going on with immigrant women who were working as nannies and maids? So in about 1945, Canada starts recruiting women from the Caribbean. This is after World War II, and women from mostly British colonies in the Caribbean started coming over. Out of those, primarily it was women from Jamaica and Barbados, but all over. And that is when Canadian children finally tasted quality seasoned food. You know, there were some positives, <laughs> yeah, exactly. right? Yeah. I'm just joking, but not really. We know it's true. Okay. 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 So the catch was that the government would not issue permanent residences to these women. Because unlike the Finnish and the Irish, these women were black and brown. Mm -hmm. So Canada really didn't want them sticking around. That's right. By 1955, though, Canada did give in to a bit of pressure from the black and brown people who were living here, who were West Indian, and their governments back home. And they started the domestic scheme, which I don't know. They're all called the scheme. I know. It's very it strange. Like a like a undercover maids in a 60s heist movie it, wearing impractical shoes it's like uh, oceans 11 yeah. but for maids yeah basically yeah but this scheme that the canadian government started really was going to allow women from the caribbean to settle in canada but there was a condition that they work as domestic laborers for at least one year after that you know the government was like you can go and do other things but you got to do this for one year and then you can start trying to bring your family over, et cetera, et cetera. So like even if you didn't want to be a maid? That's right. A lot of women were not. Like, hello, I'm a doctor. Here's a here's a baby to hold. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the interesting difference that I found between the Finnish women that came and the women from the Caribbean. The women from the Caribbean, only about 12 percent had ever worked as domestics. A lot of them were highly educated. You know, the Caribbean wanted to send the best, you know, highly educated women over and 
but instead they were they were having to do these jobs that they had never done. And, you know, these women were up against a lot of obstacles. Racism, of course, mistreatment, same as what we've mentioned before that's been going on now hundreds of years, and culture shock. Many felt isolated. You know, this was a time in the Caribbean that people were very social. You knew your neighbors, you had a large extended family, and people spoke to each other on the street. Now, all of a sudden, you're in a neighborhood where you might be the only black woman for miles, and you're not looked on as an equal. You are the nanny. By the 1960s, Canada realized its immigration policies were racist, and maybe it wasn't a good look. Right. So the country began to open its doors. But as we discussed in our episode, the province of Jamaica... Fear mm-hmm. eventually took over. Hysteria. Yeah. yeah. The Montreal Star wrote that Canada should be worried over a color problem. Activists responded, accusing Canadian officials of letting in unskilled Europeans while denying entry to West Indians. The Trinidadian Prime Minister, Eric Williams, called bullshit. Mm-hmm. He said that... It was a manifestation of Canadian hypocrisy and that Canada had historically benefited from Caribbean plantation slavery, Uh but wanted nothing to do with free West Indians. Exactly. Thank you, Mr. Eric Williams. Mm -hmm. It was a burn and a very true and accurate burn. By 1979, West Indian domestics were organizing to protest how few of them could actually stay in Canada, as most were still under temporary work visas. They took their case to the Supreme Court of Canada and won the right to stay in Canada. But there would still be a two-year residency as a nanny or domestic that they would have to complete to gain citizenship. It's almost like you have to be under our thumb. Mm -hmm. This is what it is. It's... You have to let me watch you dust mm-hmm. for two years. Well, and, and then you can stay. And it, like, what it, it is, all ties is it's back. creating the underclass, right? Like it's yes. creating the structure and this class structure that Canadians don't ever want to admit that we have, right? You can look at a group of people and Canadians can probably in the back of their mind pick out people who they think are working as a domestic or working as a laborer mm-hmm. or or a migrant worker yeah. because of policies like this. And it's enraging because it really is so many people that come here have, like we said, the idea of skilled or unskilled is preposterous to me. And there are so many people working right now in jobs that could really be of use in our in so many in so many ways you know other than being a domestic or and like again there's nothing wrong with that job no but you should have a choice yeah you should have a choice but it's, yeah it's really is like that mrs montgomery watching her mm-hmm. it's the same sentiment to me mm-hmm Uh, If you had to guess, which country do you think most nannies come from to work in Canada? From the Philippines, I think. Is that that right? I'd say the Filipinos because I have a lot of Filipino friends and they keep telling me they're the ones that come in the most. The whole Caribbean, but I'd specifically say Jamaica because I know a lot of people come be like babysitters and stuff and then they go back home and they keep traveling like that. When my mom first came to Canada, she's from St. Lucia. She started out as a babysitter. So I would definitely say like more the Caribbean and like India and stuff, like maybe like southern places. What also was happening at this time was 
Filipino immigrants began coming to Canada. This is in the late 60s and early 70s. Canada was actually looking for healthcare professionals. And by 1972, 85% of Filipino immigrants held at least a bachelor's degree. Many of the Filipino women who came in at this time worked as nurses or doctors and were able to further careers and education during this time. Okay, I feel I feel like there's going to be a but coming in this. <laughs> well, yeah. but by the 80s, things had changed. Canada instituted the Live-In Caregiver Program, where women could come to Canada but would have to spend two years as a live-in domestic. This was for specifically women that they deemed to be unskilled, Ugh. right? Canada once again was having a problem finding the people who wanted to do this specific specific job, be a domestic, be a nanny. So women from the Philippines who were not able to get to Canada any other way applied for the live-in caregiver program, which restricted their work. They could only do this. You know, their time was taken up doing this. You didn't really have any time off. So many were not able to further their education or better themselves while they were here, right. like the women just 10 years before. As they mention in the book, Disturbing Invisibility, Filipinas took the place of Caribbean domestics in the racialized labor hierarchy. So I'm kind of nervous to ask you, you know, what is it still like this? Is it getting better? Has mm -hmm. it gotten better? What is what's the current climate of, you know, nanny culture mm -hmm. in Canada? So, you know, I had these same questions. Uh, so I contacted one of the editors of the book I just mentioned, Filipinos in Canada, Disturbing Invisibility. Um, she is the Canada Research Chair in Canadian Migration Policy, Impacts and Activism. Uh, my name is Ethel Tunkohan. I am an assistant professor in uh, the Department of Politics at York University, and I'm also the Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in Canadian Migration Policy, Impacts, and Activism, and I'm also part of Gabriella, Ontario. Now, there is, I feel, like a big misconception you talk about this in the book of, you know, the stereotypical nanny and that people in, today in 2019 in Canada have that that picture in their mind that this woman is of Philippine descent. Why is that? I think there's a lot of racial stereotypes that are being put into play here. I think there's the stereotype that we have uh, Filipina nannies who come to Canada and all of them are docile and downtrodden and all of them uh, are here because they, uh, you know, are trying to escape from desperate circumstances, right? And I think what these narratives do is they kind of ignore the fact that all policy improvements of the caregiver program were only brought in because caregivers themselves fought for them. Right. Uh, so this included Filipina women. This included Caribbean women before that. Uh, so I think uh, with respect to all of these stereotypes, what's important to remember is that, you know, policies such as, for example, the right to apply for permanent residency in the first place, uh, that was only put into place uh, in 1981 through the foreign domestics movement after women protested. Right. After organizations such as Intercede uh, started getting established by caregivers themselves. A lot of my 
own advocacy and research work looks at caregiver activism. And one thing I should say is that, you know, caregivers are here, um, they're nation builders, they're here contributing to their communities, and they're here making sure that conditions, so policy improvements take place. So in contrast to stereotypes saying that, oh, caregivers are, you know, um, downtrodden, they don't have agency, we need to look at how caregiver activists are disrupting these spaces and are actually complicit in ensuring their policy improvements being put out there. Right. Right. So they're moving the ball forward themselves as opposed to whatever the other narrative that people think. 100 percent. And I think, you know, there's this perception that all of these policy improvements are being given by the Canadian government out of the goodness of the Canadian government's hearts. Absolutely not. (laughs) Caregivers march in the streets. Caregivers in Vancouver and Toronto, we've had like they've had like flash dances in the middle of the city to publicize uh, that care work is visible, that care work deserves recognition. None of these policy changes would have taken place if caregivers haven't been actively lobbying for them. Right. And I I think it's important to realize that even if a lot of caregiver caregivers don't have Canadian citizenship yet, uh, the fact that they're active in these organizations and all of these different actions show that they are a part of the Canadian community, right? right. They are complicit in, in ensuring that these improvements take place. Mm-hmm. Why is it that caregivers are still being treated as citizens in waiting? Why is it that they still have to live lives in limbo? Why is it that they have to wait uh, for them to be able to get permanent residency for themselves and their families? Why are they locked in to this two-year uh, working requirement? And a lot of policy improvements have taken place. I'm not denying that. But I still question why is it that, you know, as, as decades have gone on and, you know, it's been how long since the foreign domestics movement in 1981? Um, it's been, what, like 40 years? Why is it that we're still fighting the same fight? In 2015, a conversation arose about the nanny who was looking after Prime Minister Trudeau's children. Should taxpayers be paying for the Trudeau family caregiver? After some debate, it was decided that yes, the family should have these expenses compensated by Canadians. After all, the Trudeaus travel a lot, and like many working parents, today they need help. The average yearly salary for a live-in caregiver in Canada is around $27,000. The annual pay for the Trudeau's nanny was set in a range from just below $40,000 and no more than $45,000 for her full-time job of taking care of the three Trudeau children, one of whom was not yet in school. The Prime Minister's chef pay range, well, that maxed out at $79,000. Well, that's it. Our last episode of season two, and it was recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. That's right. It was written and hosted by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, Phelan Johnson, and produced by Katie Jensen. We just want to thank everyone involved in this season, including Yvette Nolan, John Weir, Kelsey Cueva, Brenda Carroll, Cecil Fernandez, Evan Agard, Kate Seaman, and our digital producer, Fabiola Carletti, senior producer, Tanya Springer, and executive producer, RF Norani. 
big thanks to everybody who helps us put this together. We couldn't do it without you. Yeah, all the people we interviewed and and emailed to interview that didn't email us back. That's okay. We'll, that's fine. Yeah, that's we'll try fine. again. Yeah. Or yeah. not, maybe. Um, but especially thanks to the listeners. Yeah. Thank you for listening. And if you're yes. just tuning in, you can go back and start at the beginning and remember, pass, pass it, it on. on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.